I'm speaking with Alpinist and Protect Our Winners athlete advocate Graham Zimmerman about skiing, wilderness, and building strong people with strong communities with The Voice. Here's the full interview, uncut and unedited. So yeah, I don't know if you know too much about this project, but kind of doing a little grassroots ski guide and illustrated book, illustrated animated ski guide for this greater Yellowstone region. Love it. That's awesome. So yeah, it's like a, it's kind of a you know thing I do to train some of my folks to do our corporate work that we do. But we do oh, these cool. side projects, like part of my best in the Northwest program, been doing for over a decade, starting with Washington Trails and stuff. And now that I moved back here to Montana, um, we're kind of switching it up a little bit and just doing more of like a animated, <laughs> illustrated, real storytelling kind of thing that's kind of unique. So, oh, I love I love that. Yeah. So, but I think the the um, and there's so many interesting stories, you know, especially with uh, the communities that skiing has brought around this area and, and the bigger stories, which is kind of what I'm going to end this. We're doing a Kickstarter campaign right now to get funding for the printed book. Um, cool. And so there's like two more weeks of that. So we've been focusing like Nordic skiing one week, the next week backcountry skiing, you know, got like Doug Chabot, avalanche experts, stuff like that. Um, and then the final one will be on more of the resort skiing in the area. So cool. And I thought as a a final part of this big picture, what I want to do with this program, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but is we really want to be uh, part of social change for building strong people (laughs) individually, physically strong. That's what skiing does. And it also builds strong communities um, to do bigger things like uh, protect our public lands and to solve or start addressing bigger issues like climate change. So that's where, yeah. So we want to get there, but the first thing we got to do is like make a little book and then we get, you know, little baby steps. So oh yeah, that's, that's how the, that's how this stuff works. We got to so, right? yeah. take one step at a time and get everybody to come along with us. Yeah. I mean, it really is like, I talked to a bunch of folks here that founded all of the organizations here from uh, the Bridger Ski Foundation to the ice climbing festival to the, um, you know, to, to uh, the Yellowstone Club or Big Sky, they all started like this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? These little organic things. Hey, I got this crazy idea. <laughs> Let's do something that, you know, people might take off with. So, but, Love that. but anyway, yeah, why don't we get going? Why don't you tell us your name and your, your title and how you got started with Protect Our Winners? Yeah, so my name is Graham Zimmerman. Um, I'm based here in Bend, Oregon. Uh, traditionally, I travel a lot, not not this year, of course, but um, normally I actually spend a lot of time in Bozeman and in the greater Yellowstone area. And there was there was a point in time where I think I would have told you that I that I lived there um, many many years ago now. Um, but uh, it's Bozeman and in the greater Yellowstone are an area that are very, that are very close to my heart. Um, so what I do, um, I, I work as a professional climbing athlete. I, um, and then I also run a film company called Bedrock Filmworks. And then I also lead up the POW climb program, uh, POW being Protect Our Winners, uh, Protect Our Winners is an organization that was launched in 2007 by a fellow named Jeremy Jones, who many folks who are in the ski and snowboard space will be familiar with. And in 2007, he he launched this program because he was seeing all these changes taking place in these environments that he loved, um, the high altitude and high uh, latitude environments that are, you know, the areas that are most affected by by climate change or where climate change is kind of most apparent. And he, he decided to take those things that he had seen and try to utilize them and leverage those into uh, crafting policy change and community change within the ski community. And that's something that he's been really successful with. And, and at this point, uh, they've built a pretty, pretty um, robust team around, around that work. Um, and part of that has been expanding from the snow space into the climb and trail spaces. Um, and so f- my my role within that is, you know, I was, I was brought on as an athlete, um, kind of one of the initial climbing climbing athletes, and uh, and then uh, have have hence been been brought on to actually like have kind of a role within the organization, helping to run that run that climb program. 
and so that's that's been something that's been really really cool for me um, something I've really enjoyed I have um, kind of started I started dipping my toe in the kind of like policy waters um, with the American Alpine Club I, uh, I, I sit on the, the board over there and uh, and then I'm on the policy committee so I've kind of hit kind of started working in that world and then and then uh, Pow has given me the opportunity to really sink sink my teeth into that and my kind of reasons for getting involved there are very similar to Jeremy's in a lot of ways in terms of I spend a lot of time in places like the Karakoram. I spend a lot of time in the Alaska range. Um, I spend a lot of time down in Patagonia or at least have, um, or at least I, I kind of used to, I don't, I haven't spent as much time down there recently, but, uh, but those are all areas that are seeing very dramatic effects and it's, there are areas where it's very hard to ignore. And I have, I have an educational background in glacial hydrology, which, which means that, me, you know, I, I have to be, I have to pretty willfully ignore those things. And I, and I did that pretty effectively for many, many years being a, you know, 25 year old, uh, climber hell bent on putting up hard roots in the big Alpine kind of realms. Uh, I, I did a pretty, pretty good job of ignoring it for many years, but that's something that as I matured as a, as a, as an athlete, as a community member and as an individual, um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really able to uh, kind of keep my head in the sand. And so a big part of the work that I've done with the AAC and with, with, uh, with POW has been um, kind of like basically learning how to flex that um, advocacy muscle and learning what that means and how to do that. And, and it's been something that I have really enjoyed and now being in this kind of leadership role over at POW, um, I'm able to help others with that journey as well, which is something that I really enjoy. Yeah, really cool. Um, yeah. So, so let's back up a little bit and talk about, I don't know if you remember the, the first time our paths crossed. Um, you, you remember this book at all? Oh, yeah. So, so our friend uh, Eddie put together, Eddie Espinoza put together, um, it's kind of like a, a, a kind of soft book launch for training for the new alpinism uh, by Steve House and Scott Johnston. And so my background, you know, I climb not near as prolifically as you do <laughs> or more locally, but transition. That probably, that probably means you have a more balanced life than I do, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot more skiing. So, but it's interesting because you have Scott Johnston and um, who was a Nordic ski coach working with elite mm -hmm. athletes and Olympians in the methyl. And Steve House kind of combining these two sports and kind of like the way that, you know, I've talked with a lot of folks here uh, that had climbed with Alex Lowe back in the day in the late mm -hmm. 90s when I actually met him and Conrad in at Backpacker Supply. <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? I got it. That's great. Alex, Alex is somebody I would have loved to have like had one beer with. I, Alex and I, I mean, we, our paths never crossed because he passed away before, before I was, you know, really traveling for climbing at all. But, uh, I was like, you know, back, I was, I was not even in high school yet. I don't think. And, um, that was, is that 99 that he passed away? I believe it was. Yeah. Um, but man, well, that maybe, guy. Maybe you're earlier than that. Cause I think I saw them in, I got a poster right here. It's, you signed it says Brian climbing's a passion and being another Bozeman guy. I, I mean, he inspired me like crazy, you know, cool. just to get out there and probably the reason I, did the stuff I did in my climbing, if I don't, I can call it a career, but <laughs> in my pursuits was because of the inspiration I got from him. So I think that's like the real power of, you know, certain athletes can really instill a lot of passion with people. And, and that's kind of, so, but the point of my story is, I think I see you in that role now, you, you know, evolved into this place where now you have this leadership ability and you're seeing bigger picture issues happening right now across the planet really and you have a platform now to help address those and collectively bring people together um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about that journey from you know the program when you started working with Steve and the mentorship <laughs> you know training you to become your Jedi apprentice or something <laughs> to what you are now like can you walk us through that a little bit yeah I mean I think that um well it's 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 really Interesting. I mean, there's kind of, there's a lot to get at here because for me, climbing started as a very, 
personal pursuit. And as we, as we look at all of this time and energy that we pour into climbing or that I have poured into climbing um, and the risk that I've taken on for that pursuit of climbing, um, something that I, when I kind of mentor younger athletes uh, is, you know, it's like you, the only person you should be doing this for is you. And any time that you find yourself in a position where I'm doing this for a paycheck or I'm doing this for, you know, more likely like a couple of jackets um, uh, or, you know, I'm doing this because I, you know, because I want to like, I don't know, whatever, meet, meet a, meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever. Like there are any, any number of potential external motivators that can drive us as climbers and one of the primary things we need to do is really shed those away so that the only reason we're doing it is for us because any other reason is the wrong reason. And that's something that I focused on really hard for, for many years. And as I, you know, as I kind of look at, you know, the folks who uh, were, you know, major inspirations to me and mentors to me, that's something that, uh, that I think they all really uh, demonstrated to me very, very clearly. Um, and that's something that, you know, is when, as I started working as a, you know, professional climber, um, air, air quotes there. Um, and I do, I, I guess I am, I guess I am like a pro climber now, but, uh, and I've been on contract for many years, but you know, pro climber is such a weird kind of stratified world of, uh, what, whatever the companies end up sending your way. But, um, but th- I think that that was something that in that realm was like very, very important was to really make sure that I was doing this for, the uh for the right reasons and uh one this is this is pretty tangential but one thing that i that i do occasionally and have done for many years is i will go on a trip where i'm, I'm going somewhere where like th- where i'm like not going to put up any first ascents and i'm not going to do anything like that's going to like make it into the climbing rags but uh but i'll but i'll but i'll um but i'll go there and kind of have a exploratory experience one of my favorite examples of this is going to newfoundland where uh there's all this amazing ice climbing and there are two guys from new england who have gone up there and done just about everything um and so you go up there you have this full like exploratory first descent experience but you're never going to write a report about it because it's all already been done they just haven't told anybody and so it's always this like kind of litmus test of like i'm going on this trip where all the factors are there except for the like fame and glory at the end and do i still really like this and if uh and if the answer is no then you you really have to do some uh you really have to do some some soul searching and figure out like okay cool like what do i need to shift in order to bring myself back to that space um but that aside um that's something i worked on really hard but uh very very i've worked very hard on that over the years and and have continued to find myself motivated by uh by uh you know hard climbing by exploratory climbing by climbing in the in the greater ranges and uh and so this this whole kind of discussion of okay so now let's talk about utilizing the stories in those spaces as an advocacy tool in order to drive change in our communities is a really interesting one because it becomes you know, it kind of gets you into a little bit of a gray area there it's something that like um, but I've, but for me, it's so, so that's something that I approached very cautiously because of that. But for me, it's turned into this, um, program where I'm able to utilize this deep kind of well of experience that I have from these environments. And instead of that being something that, you know, I kind of, I kind of keep to myself and I, I use, I use very kind of, kind of not sparingly, but I use very, um, intentionally with, you know, kind of help with marketing programs or help with, um, you know, kind of, uh, like, uh, either teaching initiatives or, uh, mentorships and initiatives or kind of encouraging others to go out and follow their dreams and things like that. It's turned into something where I can have a very direct effect on the communities and the environments around me by sharing those stories and relating them to climate, which, um, uh, like I said, is something I approached cautiously, uh, both in terms of how I wanted to get at it, how I wanted that to influence my climbing, and then also the kind of um, 
being kind of self-conscious about the whole component of like imperfect advocacy, which we can get into. Um, but it's been something that in the end has been exceptionally powerful for me and has been, uh, has been a really, a really exciting kind of addition to this like journey of my relationship with the mountains. So, I mean, you travel all over the world. Um, a lot of us, I think our experiences, other, other climbers and skiers, explorers in the lower 48, uh, specifically places I've been to where I've noticed climate change would be Glacier National Park, um, the North Cascades, you know, trying to do the Ptarmigan Traverse a few years back and a, the Glaconts melted out on, on typical and then the weather patterns getting more and more severe with forest fires. So I think mm -hmm. people that are out in the wilderness more, even in the United States, um, are observing these things firsthand, right? So yeah. is, is that, was that your initial connection uh, with folks about like, wow, something bigger is going on here and we're all noticing it? I think so. I mean, um, as we look at climbers, um, you know, something that we do as climbers is we go outside and we spend time in places and we tend to go um, and return to spaces over and over again, whether that's that crag where we want to, you know, do do that route next door or work on that project, or there's that ice climb that we've kind of gone back to a few times um, to like try to do it, or that mountain that, you know, that we would really like to do and it takes us a couple of tries. And that means that, you know, at the core of our experience with climbing is a relationship with space. And that relationship with space, I think, is one of our most powerful tools and motivators that we have in order to really help us um, become, if not climate advocates, people who are aware of climate change beyond just like reading, reading the scientific journals or listening to Bill Nye. Like this is something that is ours. This is something that we, our experience embodies. And it's something that I think that anybody who is a climber um, is like, you know, can, you know, if they were to think about it, like can come up with a personal story that demonstrates the change that our, um, that our climate is experiencing. Yeah. And, and so, I, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about your, you know, imperfect athlete <laughs> film that came out. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting story um, in that, just, you know, as individuals, we start looking at what kind of our, the impact our own behavior has, right? And I wonder what other sort of things, my, my personal experience this year has been kind of strange in that um, last year I had a contract where we're flying all over the country filming these technology videos with the crew, right? Mm -hmm. And we finished that contract and I decided at the end of the year, it was too risky for me because my insurance company's like, you're inland marine. We don't want to renew it because I didn't realize you're going all over the place and it's too risky for us. And I thought, then yeah. it might be too risky for me <laughs> just <with> travel <laughs> involved. So I deliberately changed my business back to doing remote motion graphic graphics, corporate videos, and then COVID right. hit. And then the whole world went to all we can do now are remote corporate motion graphics videos. And oh so yeah, good job. Footprint completely by accident went to pretty much nil you know we're all in the house we're working here using the internet but you're using electricity but we're not really making driving hardly anywhere or flying anywhere um so i'm wondering what what sort of behaviors have you noticed with covid and the pandemic happening and um is it something people are becoming more aware of being able to actually see like reduction in carbon emissions that sort of thing yeah i, I mean for sure on the short short term the uh the pandemic has been a, a a positive for our collective carbon footprint. Um, there is, you know, I've, I, I have, I've dug into some reports. The, the economist did a really good, um, wrote a really good piece on this about how uh, events like this in the past uh, where travel has been reduced for whatever reason. Um, I think, a, I think a really prime example is, was 9-11. Like travel was reduced dramatically after 9-11 because people, you know, everything kind of shut down for a little while. Um, and not, not this long, but, but they see, but they, they showed that like, even though there was a, a was a drop in carbon emissions um, without, you know, political or policy action around carbon uh, and 
you know, moving towards a green energy economy and, and things like that, um, that we just like jumped right back on the same curve as soon as we were able. And I think that as we look at this pandemic, I, this, this, you know, this has provided us a pause. It has provided us time to reflect on our own lives, on our society. Um, that is, that's been a big part of uh, why this, um, you know, we've had so much discussion around Black Lives Matter, which, uh, you know, felt like another kind of like negative thing. It's like all these protests, but actually like it's this, it's, it was kind of, you know, the pandemic created this reflection point and we were able to collectively look and see, oh man, like there's this, like, we have all this inequity. Let's do something about this. Like I think as we look back on that kind of in a historical, um, in a, like, is you know, historically, you know, a few years from now, that's going to be a, kind of a positive from from this pandemic. And I think we can do the same with climate, but the pandemic on its own while reducing carbon emissions on the short term is not going to solve this problem with, uh, without us really digging in and looking at the way that we transport our goods, the way that we transport ourselves, the way that we power our, our you know, our homes and our infrastructure and our industries. Um, and if we don't take a very close look at those and understand how we can reduce um, the carbon emissions that come from those, then then this like time of reflection will be uh, a, a blip of lower carbon emissions uh, that will not really matter. Yeah. So, so, so we can do a little bit as individuals. If we collectively work together, then we can shape policy and other things. What are the big, I mean, what is it going to take? What sort of initiative-wide um, action needs to happen to actually make a dent in this? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really, really great question. And, um, and it's a really important question. And I think that the kind of one of the, um, to, kind of, to kind of back into that a little bit, um, we've been kind of sold this idea that we solve the climate crisis and all of our environmental stuff by recycling and taking a couple less plane flights. And, um, and it's been really a really interesting uh, notion because it means that people can say, oh, cool, like I flew one, time, one less time this year. Um, I'm doing my part and I don't really have to worry about this. And if you want to kind of dig in on where that came from, I would, I would highly recommend a podcast called Drilled, which is all about, um, it's all about Exxon, it's all about, and it's all about some of their kind of like public, public policy initiatives and things like that. But, but it really does bring up the fact that like, they were kind of part of that, um, of like feeding us that, that idea. And when we, when we look at our personal impact versus the impact of industry or transportation overall, um, or uh, you know how we power our grid, uh, our our personal impact turns into something that's not even a rounding error. And um, and an example of that is um, if we look at uh, the expedition that I took to Pakistan in 2019, um, that entire expedition, uh, which was four people traveling across the world for three months. Uh, I think our total carbon footprint, uh, oh man, it's, I don't know if I've had quite enough coffee to like get the memory banks that booted up, but I think it was 24 uh, tons of carbon. And, uh, and then if we look at the uh, total, if, if we look at the, um, the amount of carbon coming off like the top 10 uh, power plants in the United States, it's like 20, uh, 20 million carbon, uh, tons of carbon. Uh, I can, if for, for, for your book, let me know. And I will, um, I can cross reference those numbers and make sure, make sure they're right. But, but it turns into this thing where it's like this industrial input carbon wise is like so much larger to then our personal input, even this like big expedition that was like, you know, flying all over the place and all, you know, all this, all these different components and this thing that we would look, people give me shit about like, oh, how can you be a climate activist when you're flying across the world? And it's like, well, look at the difference between those things. Like I'm going on this trip, 
I am having this impact. Yes, um, we are offsetting it, which is just a stepping stone. That's not a solution, but it's something. And then we're taking all these stories from Pakistan and utilizing them to drive policy change and uh, and looking to change that much larger number to move us move us towards a uh, green energy economy to develop more um, to develop to develop a more electronic vehicle infrastructure to put in a, uh, a price on carbon, things like that. And, uh, and so that's like, that's the kind of balance that we need to, to work on achieving. So to get back to your question, sorry, I'm like, you've got me, you've got me kind of like the, 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 the caffeinated part of the morning is I, I just drank a couple of espressos. Um, but, uh, the, you know, if there, the problem with climate is that there's no silver bullet. When we look at like, wins uh politically over the last few years you know we have like um uh you know like gay marriage is a really easy choice it was something where where we put it you know collectively as a society we put in a lot of work and uh the obama administration passed um a, you know passed a ruling that gay marriage is is legal in the united states which is very exciting but it's just like you know it's like you just kind of had to say yes like it's this thing where it's like cool, here's, here's the solve. We just need to make this thing legal. And it like, you know, it's at least for that one particular issue, uh, it, it kind of solves it. Whereas climate is something that is far more complex and any solutions that we have um, are going to have follow on problems. So therefore it can be, you know, kind of critiqued to the point where, oh, we shouldn't do that because of this, this, and this. And every solution has uh, that, you know, has that kind of like follow on problem. So nothing is perfect. And that means that we're going to have to put uh, solutions in place. And then we're going to have to work on solutions for those solutions. And we're going to have to, you know, continue to work on this. And this is going to be a, this is going to be a problem that we have to work on for our entire lives and for our entire children's lives. It's just like, it's, we're not committing to doing that one thing. We're committing to a process of like, how do we form a better relationship with our, you know, with our planet uh, as a society? And, uh, and that's something that is like this really big thing, but like, kind of, it's also pretty exciting. And so the things that, that we're focused on at POW in terms of things that are like clearly actionable right now in terms of policy are um, looking at, uh, electronic vehicle infrastructure um that's both personal electronic vehicles and also like corporate fleets and um trucking and much of that like we have a lot of the technology in place a lot of it means incentivizing those incentivizing those uh, modes of transportation and then provide like setting up the infrastructure that's needed so that they can actually like drive around and charge um looking at a green energy moving towards a green energy economy which means getting primarily getting our grid, um, our electro, you know, our electricity grid on renewables. So looking at moving away from coal, moving away from gas, moving towards renewables like wind and solar. <clears throat> and, uh, and then uh, the other two are looking at um, putting a price on carbon. So it's creating incentivization that is economic incentivization that drives us towards um like balancing the ability for renewables to compete um, right now. There's so much um, there's right now, there's so much incentivization towards oil and gas because of that lobby that we need to, you know, peel that back and create more incentivization towards uh, towards renewables so that they can effectively compete in the energy market. And then the last one, which is interesting is public lands and public lands have been this huge kind of like this huge issue within the outdoor space kind of like they're kind of like the outdoor space's own little wedge issue um and uh and we've been talking mostly in that space about the borders of public lands and maintaining those you know it's all the discussion with the the trump administration reducing uh bears ears and escalante and uh and so we're but uh, what we're finding is that uh there was a report that came out in 2018 that showed that um just under a quarter of emissions in the united states are actually coming off of public lands and as we look at what public lands represent in this country those are those are lands that we all own as the citizenry and they are lands that we should have an influence on like what goes on on the what goes on in those lands and um 
so what we're so what we're working on is uh is not just the borders but more at power working on what's actually going on in terms of leasing on those lands and and a really easy example for that 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 has turned into a hot topic recently is the Arctic National Refuge. And that's a classic example. Like they're not trying to make the Arctic National Refuge go away. They're trying to lease land within that refuge. And so that's, those kinds of fights are what we're, what we're really, really working on. Hmm. Wow, man, there's a lot there, holy cow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you just, you just got the download. Yeah, um, yeah. no, I, I, it makes me think of this film we just watched. Um, it's, I think it's called 2040. I'm not sure if you've seen that yet. Haven't, no. It's, it's really like uh, this, this father, I think is from Australia, is thinking about what kind of future his young daughter is going to have. And so oh, rather I have, than, I have heard of this. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it's something we're actually going to rent for our creation care team, part of our, our church's uh, program to kind of ministry environmental <laughs> knowledge to people as part of our stewardship. Um, Sweet. But yeah. But, it, but basically the premise is that what sort of things would we need to do to create the future that our children would, we want for our children? That's what we, how we need to be thinking about this, right? Yeah. Well, so what he was doing is kind of some similar things like you've been doing. He did have to travel around to meet different people in different parts of the world to get different ideas, to have a conversation about it. And in doing that, they discovered some pretty amazing things. Like um, I think it was in India, they actually have an entire kind of homemade grid off of these little solar panels that they can connect and run an app and then feed their own commerce and economy <laughs> through the cool. bite-sized tangible pieces. Uh, I mean, I had done similar work with the Gates Foundation on the reinvented toilet, similar idea, created entirely different infrastructure of standalone units that are cheaper, that create energy and do all this crazy stuff that mm-hmm. don't have to do the traditional way we did it 50 years ago. So I think that's the value on actually traveling and exploring and having these conversations with folks that you might not have talked to before, because how are you going to get these ideas otherwise and see what's working? So to your point of like, it's exciting. Yeah, I think, you know, to be able to actually kind of tear down some of these borders and realize we're all in this thing together. Let's get our heads out of the sand. Let's, you know, start making some things happen so we can improve the quality of life for everybody. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. To, totally and that's As that really that, that oh sorry go ahead i, I, I kind of yeah well i'm just saying like that that should be something that all americans can agree on we want to have a better future for our children right oh yeah it's like i mean that's that's like that's like one of the original parts of like the american dream right and i think that and i think you know another another thing about america is that we love to think of ourselves as world leaders um and to your point about what's going on in india or what's going on in europe or even what's going on in china at this point like in terms of a green energy economy like we are falling behind and this is a this is something that we do not want to fall behind on this is something that affects you know doesn't just affect our ability to like go skiing this affects our uh our energy security this affects our um you know our, our like world leadership on issues that are getting larger and larger, namely, you know, namely climate change and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the kind of carry on effects from that and how those are affecting our coastlines and things like that. So I think that, you know, as we look at, um, you know, kind of what this, what this means on a global scale, it's a really big deal. And then I think you, uh, you know, kind of thinking about communities, something that we, you know, kind of going back to that whole um, uh, discussion about what happened in, uh, in terms of the the, the protests around uh, so, uh, social equity and things like that, um, you know, that's something that we also have to consider within within climate is this whole idea of environmental um, intersectionalism and understanding that this is far like we can use our climbing and our skiing as tools to craft change, but what's at stake is much much larger. Yeah, but I, I think that's a great kind of coming back full circle into something I learned on this, this book project, interviewing all these groups that um, like uh, Christine Baker, uh, she's the program director for mountain sports at Big Sky. And she says, well, in Montana, there's 15 different ski areas. They all have the same goals. <laughs> they want to support each other and they do better working together. So yep. I, I, I've seen, you know, with all this you know, division in our country, I, I have seen lots of examples of really strong relationships 
um, you know, building each other up uh, physically and mentally and, you know, making these connections to be, to eventually make policy and things that will hopefully shape and craft a better way for us to do things in the future. Um, so I've, I found that to be really encouraging and, and just to have this part where people, it, it's such a big thing to tackle that you really need to kind of have, you know, connect with other folks to have these discussions <laughs> and, you know, and, and uh, get together to actually start to figuring out how to address all sorts of issues. But that's how you do it with open communication and um, learning from elders, <laughs> learning from all sorts of people that remember the history, remember things, uh, have a lot of, you know, experience and influence. Totally, man. And, uh, you know, as we look at uh, the size of the outdoor industry, as we look at the size of our community, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, that we did that audit a couple of years ago um, and of, of, of all that. And I think it was like the outdoor industry is um, like $840 billion and it's bigger than pharma. And we have all, like, we have so many people. We have, um, I, 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 it's like, um, I forget how many people we have in the kind of OIA audit of the outdoor recreation community. We have tons and tons of people. And the thing that we don't do that well is work together. The thing that we don't have is a, you know, an Exxon that is, that is uh, pouring, you know, millions and millions of dollars into lobbying. And if we can learn to work together more effectively, then we have massive power to craft change. And that's something really exciting. And so I think that one of the kind of big goals that we're working on is how do we more effectively communicate, not, you know, is these like all these different little groups that are kind of, you know, yelling and screaming in, you know, in like kind of a different, you know, in different areas and from different little platforms, how do we actually like join together and more effectively work as a community and industry to create this change that, that we, you know, so clearly need. So, so how do people get involved and protect our winners? What, what is that? How does that suss out in our organization? Yeah. Um, great, great question. Important question. Um, you know, so uh, as we as we look at how to get involved, we have, uh, you know, the kind of entry point is to go to the website and uh, and sign up for the mailing list and the different initiatives that we have going on um, right now. Um, as you might imagine, we're kind of uh, in a major kind of reevaluation phase as we uh, consider, you know, what happened in this election. And so we are so we were very effective at driving our community towards uh, both voting and um, communicating on the election and mobilizing what we're referring to to as the outdoor state, which is um, the like we the people we feel like we are able to talk to, which is 40, 40 million folks. And the idea that coming together as kind of our own state, we're able to, uh, you know, we're able to really affect, affect a lot of change, kind of like I was getting at a moment ago. And, uh, and so as, so the, the kind of the entry is to go there, dig into what our current initiatives are, how we're getting at them and, uh, and then sign up for our newsletter. Um, you know, of course, of course we are always fundraising. Um, but, if, but, uh, which is kind of goes without saying, but then we also have a pretty robust volunteer network that, um, that is, that's run by a gal named Lindsay, who does an amazing job of working with a whole variety of folks, um, in order to, uh, you know, a whole variety of folks around the country in order to um, organize on the kind of local and regional levels in order to craft change. And through that, through that program, we have a lot of, a lot of, um, there are a lot of resources available and things like that. So that would be kind of the continuum. And I would encourage folks to go over to the website, dig into what we're up to. And, uh, and since, since we're kind of in a, I'm not, I won't dig into exactly what those are just so this is remains a little more evergreen because I think things, you know, things are kind of developing right now pretty rapidly with, um, with the, the upcoming uh, administration transition and things like that. But, um, but there's a lot of great information on there and a lot of great resources and, uh, and then a lot of, you know, ways to kind of go beyond that initial step of just like signing up or donating and actually like getting, getting more involved with the organization. And what is the website address? protectourwinners.org. Wow, awesome. All right, we've got a few minutes left. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the greater Yellowstone region and um, why you think it's important as a 
Well, it, its role in the ecology and in our kind of a collective consciousness of wilderness in the United States. Yeah, um, that is a great question. And I will kind of start with my like personal relationship with the, the greater Yellowstone area, which, you know, starts, starts when I was younger. Um, you know, Yellowstone is an area that for, I, I would go as far as to say for most Americans is this like iconic place of wilderness. It's where you can go out and see, uh, you can go out and see the herds of bison. If anybody in the United States was thinking like, I would like to see a wolf, um, you know, that's, that's where I would imagine that most people think of first. Um, and it's, it's this area where, you know, due, you know, due to Yellowstone National Park, primarily, I think, is a, is a zone that, uh, that really, really represents wilderness kind of in the American ideology. And, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's something, that's something really powerful. And it's something really, um, that really drives, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, 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 an idea that drives a lot of people to form a relationship with wild spaces. And, uh, and, you know, that's, you know, that's, and that starts with this, you know, many, for many people with like the kind of iconic, uh, you know, family American road trip to go see the national parks and like see the geysers and, and go and check out the, check out the wildlife in Yellowstone and take pictures of, of Buffalo or whatever. And, um, and I just, I just love, love that that is something that is so deeply ingrained in, uh, you know, in what it means to be American, this whole idea of, you know, kind of like presented to us originally by like Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot and, and all those, all those folks who uh, are, you know, the kind of forefathers of the kind of ideal of American wilderness and the American West and the American, the wild of the, you know, the, the kind of wild areas of, of the United States. And it's been really interesting for me because it's, I think, I think when I was younger, um, you know, I was introduced to the idea of the, the wild spaces and, and then Yellowstone for me, when I was kind of got a little more involved, this is, you know, probably when I was in my late, late teens, maybe early twenties, um, Yellowstone was like, oh yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's kind of where people go like see, see geysers and in wildlife and I was going to Yosemite because that's where the walls were. And, uh, but as I, as I, uh, started spending more time with, uh, kind of within the climbing community and subsequently started spending more time in Montana and in Wyoming, uh, started gravitating towards the mountains that are in the greater Yellowstone area. Um, the ranges that are, you know, you know, pretty much in every cardinal direction from, from Bozeman. Um, you know, ranging, you know, from, you know, climbing in the, climbing the bridgers and climbing in the, uh, and climbing in areas like East Rosebud, going up to Glacier National Park and climbing in those ranges. Um, and, and pretty quickly discovered that, you know, if you're, if you're interested in climbing in wild areas in the lower 48, that those are, those are the best places to go. That's, that's where it's at. That is, that is where you are not going to see people you are going to be climbing on large mountains with very, uh, you know, very technical aspects, and uh, and whether or not you're you're out there making first descents or you are uh, repeating things, you are going to be having an adventure. And so I think that's you know as we look at that area and what it represents and and why it's worth protecting, kind of on a you know, on kind of this, like on the 50,000 foot level, it's, you know, it's this area that represents uh, wilderness to our community. And that is in its own right, something super, super important. Um, and then as we kind of like zero in on these different areas and we look at the ecosystems there and we look at what's, you know, what those areas represent and the stories coming from those areas um, and we get a little more granular, we just come, we just come away with more and more reasons why protecting those areas is an imperative, whether we're looking at water resources, whether we're looking at ecological diversity, whether we're looking at, you know, our, the, the, the resource of like snow for skiing or, and things like that. Um, you know, it's like, we, we just end up with like more and more really powerful examples of why that area needs to be protected. Yeah, it's a treasure, huh? <laughs> it, is, it is a treasure, yeah. 
totally. It is something that I, something I love that it, that it was kind of a realization at some point when I was probably my early early twenties was that uh, you know Alaska is very very cool, um, but the closest you can get to Alaska while still being a little over forty eight is the Greater Yellowstone area. Um, it's where that style of large scale adventure is still available. That's awesome. So the, the photos you sent to me, I'm sure one of them is probably Alaska when you're pulling the sled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, yeah, let's see, I sent you two photos. One is skiing volcanoes here in, uh, here in Oregon, um, which, I, you know, Oregon is another area. I mean, we are in many ways can, kind of connected to the, to the um, uh, at least the western side of the greater Yellowstone area. And, um, and then, uh, and so that's skiing in the volcanoes here and, you know, kind of adventuring in this neck of the woods. And then the other one is, is on, uh, and a really, it's from a really cool series of expeditions that we went on. This is Mark Allen and I, um, between 2011 and 2013, we took a number of trips back into an area called the Lacuna, uh, glacier system, which is, uh, a glacier system that is right next door to, the Cahiltna and the Cahiltna for anybody who doesn't know is like where all of the um where where everybody flies into to go climb the regular route on Denali um the highest peak in North America and so it's you know at times the Cahiltna airstrip on the glacier there can be like the busiest airstrip in Alaska as people are just like flying in there to go try to climb the west buttress of Denali but then there's this area next door called the Lacuna where the glacier is is is, is more um kind of tumultuous it's there's there's it's not as there's not as much flat ground in there and that means that you can't easily land planes and so therefore nobody goes there and um there's actually it's 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 probable that Mark and I were the first people to visit the north um north and northwest uh fork of the lacuna in 2011 which is bananas because it took us a day i guess initially it took us like two and a half days to ski there with sleds and that was like navigating and figuring out where to go and um by the time we had been in, in and out of there a few times i think it took us like 12 hours of skiing to get to get through there and uh to get out there from kehilda base camp and uh and so it's like not that far away but um, and it's like right next door to this, like to the, one of the busiest places in the mountains of Alaska. And, uh, and, and just going that far, we were able to find totally unexplored terrain. And it was, it was a, an amazing series of trips that actually ended with, uh, with a trip in 2013, where we made the first ascent of the Northeast buttress of a peak called Mount Lawrence. And, uh, and it was like this highly technical, stunning wall and uh and we were finalists that year for that for the um the pla d'or which is like the gold medal of of alpinism so it's like it was, it was kind of this like cool like the last trip we took in there we like got something really significant done um and but it's you know it's really this trip that signifies that if you're willing to if you're willing to kind of like dig into the corners of the map a little bit um you don't really have to go that far to still find some pretty some pretty rad adventure in uh and you know even even pretty close to home yeah well i got this sense of like that that big open expanse of space and and honestly i, I illustrated and animated that in our short film as oh, cool. kind of like you could be you could have been on yellowstone right <laughs> like yeah oh yeah yeah totally so just uh, love that. that feeling of wow big big adventure big spaces what's over there it's a little farther than most people want to go and then you discover this whole treasure trove of things there yeah, I mean, I love that, and uh, you know, I think that um, I, the part of the reason I sent that to you is is because I know you're you're writing kind of a ski book, um, uh, but for many and for many years, skiing for me meant skiing around in Alaska, um, not like technical sweet skiing, normally on Silverette four hundred fours on old skis with crappy skins while pulling a sled, um, and that was you know, it was like skis not as like a way to get radical, but as a way to actually like you know, as a transportation method. And these days I do a lot more, you know, kind of technical skiing, but, uh, but back then it was, you know, I spent way more ski days per year dragging shit around in Alaska than I did, uh, you know, like making powder turns and coolers and things like that. They're super useful tools, right? I mean, it's way better than a snowshoe or something. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it is, it is by far the best way to get around the mountains during the winter. Well, awesome. Well, that's all the questions I had, Graham. I really enjoy the time spent with us. In fact, on this one, I might just leave this as an unedited interview because there's so much good stuff in there. So cool, um, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And um, oh yeah, what are your plans for this season? Um, do you have any big things coming up? Yeah, um, let's see. So this winter is pretty quiet. We're back back on lockdown in Oregon, um, which uh, is is a pain in the ass, but I think it's I think it's a good thing for the you know health of the community. But um, uh, so this winter is is likely going to be pretty pretty quiet. Um, and then I am planning an expedition back to Pakistan, which is where I've been spending uh, most of most of my you know kind of like climbing time over the last few years um I've, I've become pretty pretty enamored with that with with the with the Karakoram and uh so going back there to try try a big big uh big route in fast fast style kind of the you know just kind of the next like last year or sorry, I guess sorry I'm kind of losing track of time here um in 2019 um so not last summer but the summer before we we made the first descent of a peak called Linksar which was considered a pretty big deal and was a was a really a really amazing trip for me and for the folks who I was there with and uh and for me I'm always like pretty focused on progression as you know whether that's as an advocate or as a filmmaker or as a content creator as a or as an alpinist and so we're kind of looking at something that's you know a little little bigger a little harder um and uh, I think it'll be I think it'll be pretty cool Awesome. Well, great. Thanks again for spending time with us, Graham Zimmerman. Um, yeah, awesome conversation and uh, makes me excited for, for future steps, no matter what they might be. So. <laughs> yeah, man, me, me too. And let's stay in touch. I think uh, I'm really I'm really fired up with the work you guys are doing and appreciate you giving me a little platform to give you my spiel on climbing and climate and all that. It's good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Graham. Have a, have a great week. Talk to you later. Hey, you as well. Okay. Take care. To learn how you can help protect our winners, visit protectourwinners.org and come back to thelastbestski.com for the scoop on skiing Southwest Montana. Until next time, happy trails.